Welcome to Coping with Cares podcast. We are an organization from the University of Michigan Dearborn. As a community, we address topics regarding chronic pain and chronic pain management. We strive to provide an uplifting environment and we are seeking to mediate any social stigmas regarding pain that may exist in our community. Through our podcast, we host a series of guests that provide insight on research-based interventions and risk factors that affect the quality of life of those directly and indirectly affected by chronic pain. Today's guest is Dr. Robert Kearns. We will discuss Dr. Kearns' expertise in multidisciplinary treatments for chronic pain management. Dr. Kearns is Professor of Psychiatry, Neurology, and Psychology at Yale University. He is one of three directors at the Yale-based Pain Management Collaboratory Coordinating Center. Dr. Kearns received his bachelor's degree in psychology from West Virginia University, followed by his doctorate in bioclinical psychology from Southern Illinois University. He has published over 250 articles and has written two books in behavioral medicine and pain management. He served in multiple leadership roles at the VA Connecticut Healthcare System and in the Department of Veterans Affairs at the VA Connecticut Healthcare System for 38 years before his retirement in 2016. Dr. Kearns is the recipient of many prestigious awards, including the 2006 Mark Walcott Award for Clinical Leadership from the Department of Veterans Affairs, the John and Emma Bonica Public Service Award from the American Pain Society, and an American Psychological Association Presidential Citation. Dr. Kearns has held memberships in several reputable organizations and committees, including the Institute of Medicine Committee of Advancing Pain Research, Care, and Education. Dr. Kearns, welcome, and it's an honor to have you here with us today. How would you define chronic pain as an expert who's experienced so much in that field? Yes, thank you. Um, First of all, I think it's important to start with the fact that the International Association for the Study of Pain, the largest international organization focused on the science and practice and education and training related to pain management, recently updated a longstanding definition of pain that I'd like to um, uh, recite for you. They define pain as an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with or resembling that associated with actual and potential tissue damage. Of course, when organizations like this one focus on a definition, every single word matters. A few key notes, pain is always a personal experience that's influenced to varying degrees by biological, psychological, and social factors. Pain and nociception are different phenomena. Pain cannot be inferred solely from activity of sensory neurons. Through life experiences, people learn the concept of pain, and persons' reports of pain should always be respected. Although pain usually serves an adaptive role, It can be associated with adverse effects on physical, emotional, and social functioning and overall well-being. And 
verbal descriptions of pain are only one way that pain can be, can be communicated. Nonverbal behaviors are also valid expressions of pain. Chronic pain can be described as ongoing or recurring pain, lasting beyond the usual course of acute illness or injury, and, and experts disagree about whether that should be limited to people who have had pain for three or six months. But also it's important to note that chronic pain often affects uh, negatively or adversely affects individuals' well-being. Although acute pain experiences are commonly linked to injury of the body and some aversive stimuli, it is not uncommon for chronic pain not to be reliably linked to structural tissue damage. Uh, the the centers for, U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, using questions from the National Health Interview Survey, define chronic pain as pain that is present on most or every day during the past six months. In 2019, in collaboration with the World Health Organization, an International Association for the Study of Pain work group addressed the very important question of whether chronic pain is a symptom or disease. The, this group recognized that when chronic pain is present, the experience of pain can be the sole or leading complaint that requires specialized care. They further suggested that in conditions such as fibromyalgia and nonspecific low back pain, chronic pain can be conceived as a disease. Otherwise, chronic pain is commonly viewed as a symptom of some other underlying disease. Very interesting, thank you. Um, and so we've seen that you have extensive research and clinical experiences uh, that focus on multidisciplinary approaches to chronic pain management. Uh, would you be able to explain what that is and how that can maybe differ from some of the common treatment approaches that we see today? As already noted, pain and chronic pain are best conceptualized within a biopsychosocial framework. And the biopsychosocial model is widely accepted as the predominant model of pain. Consistent with this model, chronic pain can, can be viewed best as a multidimensional phenomenon consisting of multiple domains, including in many, but not all cases, underlying structural pathology, the experience of pain intensity itself, and effects on physical, emotional, and emotional functioning and well-being. Chronic pain frequently co-occurs with other medical and mental health and substance use disorders and health risk behaviors such as tobacco use, limited activity and exercise, and overeating. It's therefore perhaps not surprising that even the most powerful analgesic medications such as opioids and a broad array of pharmacologic, surgical, and other invasive procedures, as well as rehabilitation, psychological, manual, and complementary and integrative health approaches such as yoga or tai chi, have benefits for a fraction of people who receive these interventions. Even then, beneficial effects are often only modest and often are not sustained. Therefore, consistent with the complexity and chronicity of chronic pain, experts generally recommend development and enactment of an integrated, patient-centered, evidence-based, and multimodal and interdisciplinary plan of pain care. Central to these models of care that have the strongest evidence, effective approaches emphasize shared decision-making, 
patient education and activation, care coordination, clinical decision supports, and a focus on addressing patient-centered outcomes, perhaps especially valued behavioral specific goals for, that are focused on improving functioning and reducing pain interference. Interesting. And so to what extent do you see these multidisciplinary treatments being embraced in the medical community? And so like, do you think that the current culture of medical delivery has made it more or less difficult for patients to receive these type of treatments? Well, there's strong evidence <laughs> that multimodal and multidisciplinary pain care is desired among both patients and providers. However, the reality is that with the exception of large integrated health systems, pain care continues to consist uh, most often of a single modality, most often medications administered by a single provider. Barriers exist among patients who are often unaware of pain management options, are skeptical of their benefits, and are concerned about stigma associated with some approaches, particularly psychological approaches. Significant challenges, uh, patient beliefs and a search for cure through procedures or surgery and a lack of interest or willingness to engage in approaches that require a considerable effort in the service of a developing an adaptive approach to pain self-management. Fear of pain or injury is an additional barrier for engaging in rehabilitation approaches such as structured exercise. Some providers may similarly be unaware of resources available to them and their patients, and they often share skepticism about the effectiveness of some approaches. Financial, uh, excuse me, these barriers are exacerbated by perverse financial incentives for unimodal procedure-based care and lack of payment and reimbursement for other approaches. Financial barriers face organizations who find it difficult to enact a viable business model that supports multidisciplinary care. Finally, in many areas of our country, the lack of providers trained to deliver effective treatments remains a significant challenge, and the coordination of care across a fragmented private practice community only adds to this challenge. And so do you see these as the primary barriers to further improving the access to multidisciplinary treatments for patients? Well, as already noted, there's strong literature supporting the effectiveness of multidisciplinary pain care. Benefits span reduction in pain intensity and improved physical and emotional functioning and well-being, as well as uh, an important outcome, which is for many, return to work. Most of the evidence draws on integrated programs delivered in either residential or outpatient settings that incorporate medical rehabilitation and psychological components in particular, and that emphasize functional restoration, return to work, and adoption of adaptive pain self-management approaches. Interestingly, research suggests that even the most hesitant and skeptical patients can be successfully engaged with appropriate incentives and early success experiences and often achieve as much benefit as those who seem fully prepared to engage in such, in such treatments from the outset. A focus on patient-centered goals, the use of motivational interviewing, and successful, uh, successive approximation that is gradually uh, moving in the direction of a desired goal, as well as a critically uh, important variable, strong therapeutic relationships, 
all seem helpful in overcoming these patient barriers. And so given all of your experiences, how do you typically see patients responding to these multidisciplinary programs? Uh, and are there any barriers, I know you touched on this a little bit, but that could be addressed from the patient's perspective in order to increase use of these programs? So I think one, one strategy that we need to engage in uh, nationally is an that has been found to be effective in other areas of behavior change, such as tobacco use or overweight obesity, is uh, a public media campaign. Unfortunately, uh, such efforts are quite expensive and the government has yet to really embrace this kind of option. In the meantime, I think that um, many organizations and individuals such as myself are really working to use social media uh, platforms. Even this kind of approach that we're engaged in today can help to better educate patients and by the way, other rep members of uh, leaders in our communities, uh, in church organizations, for example, um, in other community action uh, groups, in the government, the police, etc. I mean, there are, these are all people that could be invested in an effort to promote public education and raise awareness of the importance of addressing pain when it's present and uh, to encourage uh, pursuit of options to um, provide, find some relief from the experience of chronic pain. Of course, even then, access to multidisciplinary treatment can be challenging for many um, in our community, even uh, when there is interest. Um, and it's well established now that social determinants of health, uh, such as uh, poverty, uh, minority populations, uh, living in rural as opposed to urban communities, um, having a lack of uh, health insurance, uh, unemployment, low education, all of these are important factors in terms of who uh, develops chronic pain and what's been called high impact chronic pain, that is chronic pain that affects, uh, adversely affects physical and emotional functioning. Um, and we also know that these same factors represent barriers, real barriers uh, to persons engagement in um, uh, treatment. So it's important that we really, at, in this day and age, we also work to address those social determinants at the community level um, in trying to, and as well as in ta developing tailored approaches to our interventions that are adapted to meet the specific needs and challenges of these uh, special populations. I might cite one uh, particular uh, project for which I've uh, written a commentary in Annals of Internal Medicine. This was a very important project uh, with the principal investigator is Beverly Thorne from the University of Alabama, was funded by the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, PCORI, and it targeted rural minority uh, Alabamans who uh, were known to be vulnerable because of low literacy rates, low education, poverty, and many other uh, disadvantages. What Dr. Thorne and her team did was work 
with engaging the patients and other leaders in their in the community to help them understand the importance of this uh, work and to engage them in actually adapting the uh, therapist manual and patient manuals for a cognitive behavior therapy or pain self-management approach to uh, chronic pain management, uh, specifically tailored for this vulnerable population. And in fact, ultimately the results were published in Annals of Internal Medicine and showed uh, considerable benefit uh, for this population that previously has been particularly um, understudied. So all this, all this leads us to be relatively optimistic about the opportunities to use a patient-centered approach uh, to engaging people within their communities to try to build the capacity for what we know to be effective multidisciplinary care. Very interesting. And so just going back to uh, you mentioning uh, underserved or rural areas, so I would say that you know, is it still possible for these patients to still be able to follow that multidisciplinary treatment approach? You know, this is a, a huge challenge. I've worked historically, mostly in the Department of Veterans Affairs, targeting veterans. And uh, it's an interesting uh, but important fact that a large proportion of veterans, of course, after their service in the military, return to uh, uh, rural communities in which they live. Um, so targeting and reaching out and promoting access to care for these underserved populations, particularly those in rural settings, has become a, pri a primary uh, priority. So as I've already mentioned, chronic pain is known to be more prevalent in these communities and among people living in these settings. And um, it's really uh, important to think about the specific challenges of those populations in trying to promote access and engagement in multidisciplinary care. Um, as I've already mentioned, early work has provided some encouraging results when treatments are tailored and adapted to address cultural differences and literacy. On the other hand, some efforts to address these barriers, such as the capacity to exercise safely in urban areas, for example, have not proven particularly uh, effective. The, the increasing availability of virtual or remote delivery via a range of technologies, including the phone, video conferencing, the internet, um, and other strategies may hold promise. And of course, in the context of COVID-19 and the uh, inability to deliver care in person in many, many settings, um, or at least temporary uh, challenges in that regard. We hope temporary challenges. Um, the bottom line is that people in rural settings and other disadvantaged groups uh, may be vulnerable to the quote, digital divide. And the fact that some disadvantaged groups are without even access to internet or the technology, or even if they have the technology, they don't have the money to pay for it, or they don't know how to use it, and many other related challenge, challenges. So it's clearly a high priority to, to investigate the potential opportunities related to remote delivery and virtual care, but to not forget those who are vulnerable because of limited access to, to these solutions and to uh, figure out a way to overcome them. 
how has the field of pain management and treatment changed over the years? I know you talked a little bit about having that, um, having access to technology. And so uh, do, do you envision changes for the future? So in the span of my career, over 40 years old, 40 years, I've observed great changes in the way pain and pain management are conceptualized. Uh, the evidence supporting a broad array of non-opioid pharmacologic agents, interventional pain medicine approaches, and non-pharmacologic approaches, including complementary and integrative health approaches, has grown exponentially. The reliance on opioids as a primary intervention for chronic pain management has waxed and waned, and currently opioids are rarely initiated for chronic pain management. Although uh, residential multidisciplinary pain centers have all but uh, disappeared from the landscape, uh, some still exist and they serve as models of what can, can be done if viable business models are um, enacted. And the emergence of a robust primary care enterprise over my lifetime and efforts to promote the, promote the competencies of primary care providers and team-based cares in primary care settings has contrib contributed to optimism about the development and enactment of effective integrative models of care and care coordination that span multiple settings of care. Um, I think this latter uh, uh, focus in terms of building capacity in the primary care setting, setting uh, where, where whether it's in integrated health system settings or in the private practice community, provides a great opportunity for education and training and helping uh, primary care providers and teams learn how to um, identify and engage other resources in their communities and promote even integrated care models and, and care coordination across settings. Um, historically, we've relied, relied way too heavily on uh, co-located co teams I think learning to use technology and integrated electronic health records and other means of communication and care coordination offer great promise um, in, in uh, building our capacity for um, multidisciplinary pain care and engaging people who could benefit uh, from such care. And sort of just to sum off of that, you mentioned uh, training and education. I think we can all agree that, you know, practicing medicine from a physician's perspective starts with that extensive training and education. So as a professor at a medical school, do you feel that the education being delivered to prospective physicians is evolving to sort of follow these multidisciplinary approaches? So great question. Data from a, only a decade ago noted that education and training related to pay, pain management was sorely lacking in medical and other healthcare professional training programs. In the last decade, significant investments uh, by the National Institutes of Health and other organizations have led to significant strides uh, to address this gap. At Yale, first-year medical students are now introduced to core concepts of multimodal acute and chronic pain care, and a focus on pain management is a significant thread uh, across the remaining uh, of medical school training and clerkships and across many uh, residencies, particularly primary care and psychiatry, but really many others. Um, other health professional training programs are following suit. I'm a psychologist. The American Psychological Association has developed a significant initiative 
to promote continuing education of psychologists to build their workforce. And, and I might note that in Michigan, uh, colleagues there have embraced this um, uh, as, an air, as a priority area. Obviously, your group has as well. And I think there's um, growing interest and opportunity, particularly in the continuing education uh, domain. Of course, there's still much work to be done, but I've become much more optimistic that the future is bright. Thank you, Dr. Robert Kearns, for being our guest on episode two of our podcast, and thank you for tuning in today. For more information regarding supported research in pain management for veterans and military service members, as well as frequent news articles and updates in pain management, visit www.painmanagementcollaboratory.org, proudly presented by Dr. Kearns and his team. If you have any questions, please feel free to email us at copingwithcare@gmail.com. at gmail.com. As a disclaimer, the presented media and opinions of our guests do not necessarily reflect the organization's own viewpoints or beliefs. We do not advocate or endorse the material, and rather, we present intriguing research by hosting experts in the field. If you or a loved one are suffering from any ailment, please seek medical treatment from a licensed physician.